Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. I just want to introduce my friend, my good special buddy, Brad McFadden. He's going to bring the word. Well, good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Or no, sorry, verse 9, verse 9. Now, the problem is, is that um, when Michael called me and asked me to come here and speak to you guys, um, I was excited to do so. I was excited to see what he's doing here. I was excited to visit, visit with him. I hadn't really visited with him since he left and spent much time with him since he left. So I was excited about that. And, um, and I had just finished a series in Colossians, and I was excited about that. And I was telling him about it. He said, that would be perfect. It fits right in with what I'm teaching. And I was excited about that. And my excitement got the best of me because now I had to fit a four-week sermon series into one sermon. So I compromised, and we're only going to be here three hours. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm only half kidding. What time do y'all usually get out? About noon? All right. Thereabouts. Thereabouts. Okay. All right. So first I would like to start with introducing uh, the letter of Colossians. Uh, kind of give you some background. My, my goal here today is, of course, not to fit all that sermon series into this one sermon, but I do want to talk about the three pressures that were on the church of Colossia and the reason the, church, the letter was written. And then um, I'm going to really focus just on the first pressure. I'm going to talk about that, but I'm going to show you and I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit in you and your faithfulness to look at the other two. Okay. All right. So Colossians was written, of course, by Paul. Uh, in 62 A.D., uh, he was uh, in jail at the time. Let's see if I can get to my right note there. Okay. Um, and he didn't found the church of Colossia. It was a small church in a small town, and he didn't found it. It was founded by a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras? I have trouble saying that word. But, um, and he came to Paul while he was in jail and told him what was going on in Colossia. And then through the Holy Spirit... Um, Paul wrote this wonderful letter uh, addressing these three pressures that, um, of course, the Holy Spirit knew were going to be pressures on the church from then until now. And those, those pressures still exist on us today. All right. So, what, uh, so let me talk a little bit now about Colossia. It was a small little town. And I know y'all are a small little town, right? Jinx is a small little town on, on the edge of a big town. So maybe you can identify a little bit with Colossia here in that they were a small town and they were on a trade route between two major cities, Ephesus on, in the west and in the east, uh, Antioch and Tarsus. Um, and normally the way these two major cities would do trade is, of course, through the Mediterranean Sea. Is there a map that we can bring up? He's, she's looking for it. Okay. These are the mountains outside of, of Colossia. <laughs> but uh, Colossia was in a river valley, and there, were, uh, there was um, uh, hills on one side and then the river at the bottom, and Colossia was between the two. Oh, here we go. Um, no, you can go back to the other one. That's fine. There you go. So, um, so here's Colossia in the middle. You see Ephesus in the, in the west and Tarsus and Antioch in the east. Now, there were several um, cities along the coast here. Uh, but Ephesus was the, the biggest, by far the biggest one. And, um, and Colossia, like I said, normally you would do trade uh, through the Mediterranean Sea um, 
through the water, but it, it was expensive to travel by boat and uh, a little dangerous. So you could also go overland between these two cities. And uh, right in the middle of this overland was the town of Colossae, which was a great place to stay. Because like I said, it was a, it's a beautiful little town. There's only about a thousand people live there. And they did archeology span digs there and found that the, uh, almost all of the uh, buildings there, almost all the houses there, had an exterior room attached to them. Uh, I mean, a, like a room with an exterior door. And they believed that that was for travelers. That they were all like, a, it was a town of bed and breakfasts. And um, because of this, you had these people who were coming from these major cities staying in these people's homes. And of course, they brought with them cultural ideas and um, influences and philosophies. So, and these things, of course, were affecting the church. All right. So what was the idea or the pressure coming from Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was a Greek city. It was uh, established by the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire was, of course, the empire before Rome, and it was... Uh, a major influence over the whole world. In fact, uh, even at the time that this letter was written um, and through Jesus, um, through the early church, everybody spoke Greek at that time. And that's because, and it was the Grecian empire that kind of made Rome possible. And so um, the philosophy coming out of Greek was that of Pla uh, Plato, Platoism. And Platoism led to um, this, uh, let me, hmm. I'll get, in, I'll get into that in just a minute. So you had uh, Greek Platoism influence in the church, and then coming out of the east, uh, west, yeah, east, <laughs> Tarsus and Antioch are right above Jerusalem. And these were um, uh, cities that were established by um, Israel. Uh, this is, in fact, Tarsus is where Paul is from. And um, so you had coming out of that this pressure of legalism and Judaism. Um, it kind of makes sense the the Jews, uh, you can imagine the Jews influencing the Christian church because they had been raised with the Old Testament. They've been raised with the feasts. They had been raised um, looking forward to the Messiah. And now you have um, these people who were pagans before. They were uh, Gentiles. And they're all of a sudden becoming Christians and calling Jesus, you know, and thinking they know something about Jesus Christ. And the Jews are like, wait a minute, we've been talking about this. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather were all taught us about the coming Messiah. And here you are, you were worshiping a tree last month and you're wanting to claim Jesus as your own. You need to come into our culture because you don't even understand what you're worshiping. So you need to become a Jew and then you can get circumcised and then you can learn about the Old Testament and you can learn about the Messiah and then you can really appreciate uh, Jesus as Christ. That makes sense. It's wrong, but it makes sense. And that was the pressure coming out of uh, Jerusalem. And also um, the ism that comes out of that is legalism, the, this idea that you are saved by the law. Uh, and that comes, uh, that comes out of that. So then you have the third city, the third influence. The third city, of course, is Rome, uh, way over there. But this whole region, of course, was ruled by Rome. And uh, this was all part of the Roman Empire, and this Roman Empire had a national religion. They had a, an official state religion, and that was paganism. And paganism is uh, the idea more of veneration versus worship. So uh, veneration meaning uh, I'm going is a quid pro quo. It's a uh, tit for tat. I'm going to do something for this God, and then he's going to do something for me. I'm going to sacrifice this animal or this whatever, to this God, and then he's going to 
protect my crops or bring me wealth or bless my business or give me some male children or what, whatever it is that they were needing or wanting. Um, it was, it, they would worship these pagan gods in order to get things and to be more powerful. And that was gods, that was ancestors. They also venerated their ancestors to look after them. And also um, uh, Caesar himself. And it was uh, not too long after this that uh, venerating Caesar was required. So, because he obviously provided for the whole kingdom, so you would, you know, offer your sacrifices to him. Now, how do these three influences, this Gnosticism coming out of the East, um, legalism and paganism affect the church today? We'll get into Gnosticism and, and the Greek influence in just a minute, because that's where we're going to focus today. But I wanted to briefly go over legalism and paganism in the church today and then how we can address it. Uh, just, I mean, you can research it yourself uh, in these passages. But legalism in the church today uh, is, really comes into effect, in, I see it most, in sanctification. I mean, after all, uh, we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus, right? By grace, through faith. But then once we're saved, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to stop doing the bad things and start doing good things. We want to encourage our children who have just been saved to stop doing all the bad things and make Jesus happy and do good things. That's legalism. Okay? Of course, we're going to naturally stop doing bad things and start doing good things, but those are things that Jesus does through us, through the gifts of the, through the Holy Spirit. If we are focused on that, if we're focused on deeds and works, then we have abandoned the gospel. You see, we are saved, justified by grace from God through Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved in our sanctification, not by, we don't return to legalism then, but we're saved in our sanctification the same way, by grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And we will eventually be glorified and saved um, by grace from God through Jesus Christ. So we are saved in the past tense, we are being saved now, and we will be saved in the future. Justification, sanctification, glorification, and it is all through the gospel. We don't abandon it to then return to works. But we fight that mentally, don't we? That legalism. Um, I have to do these things in order to be approved or to be a good Christian or be a good person. What about paganism? Obviously, we don't worship Trees. I hope that that's not happening in any of your homes that you're worshiping. That you have false idols sitting on your mantle that you burn incense to. But the idea of paganism is still alive and well, and it's alive and well in me from time to time. And how we can how we can discover that in ourselves is when bad things happen to us. When bad things happen to us, and we say, "Wait a minute, Lord, I've been going to church. I've been faithful to my wife. I've been raising my kids properly." I've been reading my Bible every day. I've been praying to you. I've been tithing. I've been doing all the things I'm supposed to do. Why did you let this happen to me? That's paganism. Worship is one way. We don't worship God or we don't venerate God in order that he will protect us or, say, or, or bless us or make us rich or wealthy or wise. We worship God because of who he is. That's the Christian worship. That is Christian worship, not veneration. And it gets exposed when bad things happen and we go, wait a minute, I was doing what I was supposed to do. Think about Paul and Silas when they were um, in the little town with the slave girl who was uh, possessed by a demon. And they were on their way to prayer, it says. Every day they were going to prayer and every day they were being harassed by this girl. They were planting a church in this town. And finally, prompted by the Holy Spirit, Paul turns to that girl and casts that demon out. And then all of a sudden they get arrested, lied about, 
stripped, beaten, thrown in jail, thrown in the inner jail, which is a much worse place. Then they had their hands chained and their feet chained. Now, and then they started praying, God, we were doing what you told us to do. Why did this happen to us? That's not what they did, did they? They started praising God because they could sense the victory that the Holy Spirit just had over that city. And because at that moment, nobody, they could have been ignored up until that point. They were trying to plant this church. And, but everybody in that town was kind of going to this girl to get their fortunes told. And no longer after that event, they knew everybody in that town was going to be talking about why Paul and Silas were there. <laughs> that they were going to be the center of attention. And so they started praising God in that moment. And they started, and that was, that's real worship versus paganism. Okay, so that was very fast, and that was just the introduction, okay? <laughs> now we're going to dig into the Word. So let's get our highlighters, our notepads, our Bibles, and our shovels, and let's dig. Okay, verse 9. We're going to see, um, oh, i got to do one more thing as far as introduction is concerned, I forgot. So the way, I'm going to tell you the way this is lined out. And you might want to write this down if you, if you take notes at all um, so that you can look at this. But um, the three pressures, Paul is going to address with three core principles. And then he's going to attack the three pressures. So for chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, which is where we're going to be today, um, this is going to be where he lays the foundational principle for Gnosticism, for this Greek philosophy. Then in uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, he's going to lay the core foundational principles um, that contrast against this uh, legalism, uh, the Judaism. Then in uh, chapter 1, verses 24 through the end of the chapter, through uh, 29, there he is going to lay the core foundational principles and he's going to, so that you can easily contrast that truth versus paganism. Then in chapter two, he goes back and he attacks each of the three principles. So in chapter two, verses one through uh, nine, I'm sorry, one through 10, we're going to look at that today. And that's going to be against Greek philosophy. Then 11 through the end of the chapter, which is 23, he addresses legalism. And then uh, chapter three, verses one through 11, he addresses paganism. Okay. All right. So hopefully uh, I'm only going to cover uh, the Greek philosophy and Gnosticism this morning. Uh, and then hopefully you can use that to, to really dig in and study the other two uh, pressures. All right. So let's look at chapter. Now we're ready to start. Chapter one, verse nine. For this reason. Well, okay. We need to look at for what reason. And that is, uh, if you look back in the previous verses, you'll see the, this reason he's talking about there is their faithfulness to Jesus Christ, their love for the gospel. Okay. And for uh, uh, their pastor, which is uh, Epaphras, the one who's in charge of the church there, um, has come and reported to Paul this and is asking him to address it. So that's the for this reason part. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, their faithfulness, their, their love of the gospel. Do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Here, Paul addresses 
or lays out three things that he is praying for them for. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Now these three things are in direct contrast to this Greek philosophy, um, the Gnosticism, asceticism, uh, and the modern day version of this, which is kenosis theory. All of those things are the Greek philosophy. We're just gonna talk about them as the Greek philosophy. And Paul is contrasting what the Greeks teach with this idea that knowledge, wisdom, and understanding come from the Lord, not from man. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what the Greeks were teaching and how they were doing it. Um, so Plato, all this uh, the, you know, kind of the Greek school of philosophy, the school of Athens, comes out of Plato. I'm sure we've all heard of Plato. But what he taught was that they really latched onto was this dualism, that there was a spiritual plane and a material plane. You know, our flesh, the things we see, the things we can touch, that's the material plane, and then there was a spiritual plane. And the best way that, that I like to, to discuss this with the, when I'm teaching with the kids is to do it with chairs. He used, uh, Plato used a variety of different ways uh, to describe it, but I like the chair method. So if you could just use your imagination and imagine the chair that is in the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. I think we all have a, maybe all can imagine that chair. It's made out of marble or I think it's marble or granite or whatever it's made out of, stone. And there's a giant statue of Lincoln sitting in it. And you know, it's really big. If you've ever been there, it's way bigger than you can imagine in pictures. It's a huge thing. All right, so we can, we can imagine that chair. Then we can imagine a desk chair. You know, one of those with lumbar support that goes up and down and has the little five feet on the bottom with the little wheels on them. We can all imagine that chair. Now imagine I built a little chair out of toothpicks, okay? You can all imagine that, right? All right, how do you know all three of those are chairs? How does your mind recognize those three things as chairs? Well, Plato said that, um, that this is the ideal, that there's an ideal called chairness. And that's how we, in the material world, access this category of chair. All these chairs are made out of different things. They all have different purposes. They don't, there's nothing that seems to tie these three chairs together, except this ideal of chair. So he says all the ideals are in the spiritual world, and then everything in the material world is just a flawed copy, a, a lesser copy, a corrupted copy of that ideal. Now, for fast forward several hundred years, and you have the development of Gnosticism. And that is that everything in the spiritual world is perfect, and everything in the material world is evil. All right? So it gets kind of extremed, right? We, we, we know that, right? We can, we can identify with things going to the extremes, especially this year. So you have this, uh, this being taught, and that uh, that's where asceticism comes in, and that is the way you become a more spiritual person. The way you become a better person is to deny the flesh, is to um, deny the material. So then you have people, you know, whipping themselves. You have people uh, starving themselves. You have people um, sitting on top of poles to try to become more spiritual and uh, a better, you know, a more in Latin or a better person, more close to the ideal. Uh, now, this took root in the Christian church because it's, you could kind of see maybe hopefully the little Christian philosophy in there that, well, yeah, heaven is better than earth. We are fallen, right? And so you can see that idea kind of paralleled there. And of course, this, and so this was affecting the church, but of course it was going way too far and it was making it about uh, man and not about God. 
Um, the real, where the rubber really hit the road here is that they were teaching that, of course, Jesus, if he was a spiritual being, could not be a material fleshly thing because the spiritual is perfect and the fleshly is corrupted and evil. So <laughs> something that is divine could never be flesh. So they were denying Christ's deity. And, uh, and this, of course, was something that Paul is going to address in this passage. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But the other thing is that they, what they, uh, the way they would, um, the method they used was that they would go into the public square, these philosophers, and they would teach, they would preach something that was practical, like maybe the chair thing or something like that, and kind of get people hooked in. Oh, this guy's smart. And then they would do that to get patronage so that the rich people in the town would pay to send their most enlightened, their smartest people in that town to study under him. And they would pay him to teach them. And of course, he would say, I know all kinds of secret things about the universe. And then you need to come learn them from me. I'm the only one that has them. And maybe they would debate somebody else in, in the public square to make them look foolish. And then they would get this patronage and they get this money. But it was about teaching them secret knowledge. Um, you can never learn this on your own. You can't learn this from the universe. You've got to come learn it from me because I've studied under the best and I know all the secrets. That Gnosticism is the study of knowledge. That's what Gnosis means. Gnostic means knowledge. And it's, it's that salvation comes through knowledge. It's the worship of knowledge itself. Uh, that essential knowledge can only be conveyed from a revealed, uh, or, or revealed by someone else. Well, that is alive and well today uh, through, uh, in the, and we're feeling that pressure as a church. Uh, and it's, it's really, okay, we'll get, the, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go there now. And that is through two ways. One, our children are being taught philosophy that is opposed to the Christian principles, just like these people were. They would send them to learn from these philosophers, and all of a sudden they're learning things that are opposed to the Christian philosophy. Well, anybody who has their kid in public school knows your kid is being taught a different philosophy than what you believe. And so we can feel that pressure today. And then the other pressure that we feel today also is the dualistic idea that Jesus could not be God while he was on earth. Uh, let me quote... Uh, this is called canonic, or the canonic theory or, or canonic heresy. Um, let me just uh, read you a couple of quotes. Uh, he, that is Jesus, Jesus voluntarily gave up that advantage, being God, living his life here not as God, but as man. He had no innate supernatural powers. That's, of course, that's from Kenneth Copeland. But let's talk about another pastor that is is listed as one of the most influential pastors in the world right now. This was his quote. While Jesus is eternally God, he emptied himself of his divine powers and became a man. It's vital to note that he did all his miracles as a man, not as God. If he did them as God, he would be, I would be still impressed. But because he did them as man, as a man yielded to God, I am now unsatisfied with my life. Being compelled to follow the example he has given us, Jesus is the only model for us to follow. That's from Bill Johnson, of course, from Bethel Church, um, which is one of the most influential churches in the culture today. And that was from 2014. Notice he starts with a statement I think we would all agree in. Jesus Christ is eternally God. I agree with that. Y'all agree with that? Jesus Christ is eternally God. Um, 
And he ends with a statement I think we could all agree with, and that is Jesus is the only model for us to follow. I like that too. It's what's in the middle is the problem. Um, he emptied himself of his divine powers. He says, this is from uh, Philippians 2.7. Philippians 2, and this is where this idea of kenotic comes from. Kenosis means to empty. The Greek word there is to empty. And um, so let's read, uh, I'll read uh, Philippians 2.7 for you. You might want to go look it up, but be sure if you go look it up, you're looking up uh, all the way from 5 to 7. Okay, because you want it in context, not just the actual quote. Uh, but seven says, By, uh, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Notice that that passage does not say emptied himself of divine powers. It doesn't say emptied himself of divinity. It doesn't say it simply says made himself of no reputation. Now, the word kenosis can be translated as emptied. And if you have a different version of the Bible, it may say he emptied himself, but it is not his divine powers he emptied himself of or his divinity or anything like that. It, it, it's, uh, it, it simply is illogical because God is eternally God. The definition of God says he is always God. God cannot stop being God. I always tricked my kids. I said, can God do anything? And Sure, God can do anything. Mm, can he sin? Well, no, no, he can't sin. Okay. Can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, that's illogical, right? Can he stop being God? Well, no, if he can stop being God, he never was God. So he didn't stop being God. He emptied himself or he restrained his glory. And this is something we see throughout the Bible. Jacob, God, well, first of all, God restricted his glory um, when he was dealing with Adam in the garden. God restricted his glory when he was wrestling with Jacob. God restricted his glory more than once, but once with Moses in the burning bush and another time when he showed Moses, uh, a little piece of his glory as he walked by. Um, and then, uh, of course, he restricted himself with Israel in the wilderness, in the tent of tabernacle. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus himself then emptied himself of his glory or walked around without, uh, uh, or restricted his own glory as God. He can do that. But then on the Mount of Transfiguration, he revealed it to Peter, James, and John, right? So, um, we see that that is, and then if you look at this passage in context, uh, we see that it is not talking about Jesus not being God or emptying himself of Godhood. But it says, in fact, in the very previous verse, in verse 6, it says, Jesus, who did not consider it robbery to be in the form of God or to be equal in the form of God. So the very ne previous passage says he was God. He didn't empty himself of being God. He simply made himself of no reputation or limited his own glory to be with us as a human. So the 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 uh, church has always taught the orthodox uh, orthodoxy of the church from the from the time within the Bible here that Paul's going to defend all the way through the early church uh, in all the creeds. God, Jesus is truly man and truly God, or He is fully man and fully God. And so Paul's going to come against this heresy, but he's right now he's just establishing the foundation. So here, uh, back in verse nine, he's establishing the foundation by saying that we have asked that you be filled with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And he qualifies each of these things. Each one of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding has a qualifier attached to it. So let's look at that. Uh, first one is knowledge. It's not just any knowledge. It's knowledge of his will. Knowledge of his will. What is the knowledge of God's will? 
if I have any question that gets asked of me as a, as a teacher at the school, more than anything else is, well, how do I know God's will for my life? And fortunately, the Bible tells us very plainly what the will is for God for your will of God is for your life. First Thessalonians 5:18. This is one that if you if you're a tattoo kind of person, you might want to tattoo this one on the inside of your wrist so you can always remember it. First Thessalonians 5:18. It's not easy. This doesn't flow off the tongue like John 3:16, but it's a good one to know where it's at. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Another version says it this way, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In all circumstances, in all situations, no matter where you find yourself, you should be giving thanks to God. Not because of where you're at and not because of your circumstances necessarily, but because of who He is. That's worship. Paul and Silas again, in that story, when they were in that jail, and they offer up praises to God, in that jail, not for being thrown into jail or beaten up or chained or having the rats chew on their toes. No, they were giving thanks to God because of who he is and because of his victory in, their, in, those, in that day and in that event. And what did uh, God do in that situation? When they started praising God, he intervened supernaturally. I don't know if you remember the story, but when they were praising God in the middle of the night, about midnight, it says they were praising God and he, an earthquake came and broke open the prison and loosed their chains, not to get them out of prison, but to let the jailer in. Because that night the jailer came, was about to kill himself because he thought everybody had escaped. And they said, oh, we're here. We're here. We're still here. And they told him about Christ and the jailer was saved and the magistrates were silenced in that town. And um, so... The point is that the will of God is for us to give thanks in all circumstances. Me and Faith, um, well, let me share one more passage with you about the will of God and then I'll tell that story. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You all know that passage, hopefully. That by testing you may discern the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This has been a tough year, I'm sure, for everyone. It's been a very tough year uh, for me and faith. Anybody who owns their own business, I'm sure you've, you've suffered this year. But we, have a, we own a little private school, as Mike, uh, Pastor Mike told you. And so uh, attendance, of course, is way down. Plus, it's hard to stay open. Plus, a lot of the kids don't learn very well online. So it's just been, it's, and our teachers got sick. And um, we aren't able to do all the things that we wanted to do. And everything is closed and field trips are canceled. And it's just been a, a hard year to make it financially. It's been a hard year to make it um, to do the things that the Lord has called us to do at that school and to be able to affect the kids um, and, and teach the kids. It's just been a really challenging year. Plus, on top of all of that, we got sick. And when COVID hit, man, we, we couldn't even do the things that we wanted to do on a daily basis. I mean, you know, you get up to vacuum the floor and you have to sit down and rest. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was just hard for a month and we had a bad strain of it and it was... Uh, really tough on us and it was frustrating and and we turned into the biggest complainers you've ever seen didn't we honey we that's all we had we had uh, we ate and complained that was pretty much what we were able to do and up on top of everything else we were watching the news more because we were home all this time and so we were watching the news and there was plenty to complain about and it was just I just noticed that it was affecting us and we were kind of different people we were becoming different people than we'd ever been and I said honey we need to uh we need to start finding a way to praise God. We need to start finding a way to thank Him. And so we made time 
uh, every night before bed, the last thing we do is we come together, hold hands, and we start thanking God. And we don't ask, we don't, no supplications, no prayer requests. We ju- at this point of the day, we just thank God. And just for who he is, for what he's done, anything, any blessings he's given us, we include those two. But we spend one to three minutes just thanking God. And it has been uh, life changing. It has been uh, all just uh, altered us completely. It renewed our mind. And it allowed God to do some things in our life that I think are supernatural. I think are just miracles in our life. So. Praise works. Thankfulness works. There's a reason why Jesus, when he said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and will be done. Right? As on earth as it is in heaven. He's praising God. The Lord's prayer starts with praise. Start your prayers with praise. It's a wonderful thing. Okay. So, the knowledge of the will of God in thankfulness. The second thing he says he's praying for them to be filled with is all wisdom. Not God, not just uh, manly wisdom, not just financial wisdom, not just uh, any, t- you know, any type of earthly version of wisdom, but all wisdom. Now, wisdom is knowing. So knowledge is knowing. Wisdom is knowing when. So let's look at Proverbs, if y'all would. Proverbs 26. I love this passage. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and verse 5. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Here we have some knowledge. The, verse, the two verses are two instructions, basically. The first one says, verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Then the very next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So here we have two instructions that tell us to do the opposite thing. It's good to know those verses. That's knowledge. To know that both of them exist is also knowledge, not just one. If you just know one, you're always going to respond one way. If you know both of them, you have more knowledge, and now you have a dilemma. Which one do I do? Well, which one you do is the wisdom, right? So how do we attain that wisdom? We attain that wisdom through prayer, through thanking God. Okay, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Somebody just came to me and said something that I know is wrong. I can see the error in their thinking. I hear the error in what they just said. Now, how do I respond to them? Do I answer them or do I not answer them? Do I argue with them? Do I tell them the truth that I know or do I not? But Lord, thank you for this. A lot of us have people that when we see across the room, maybe it's at work, maybe it's here, that you go, oh, they're here today. Oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk this way so I don't have to talk to them. You know, right? But instead, if we'll just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing them here today. Thank you for this challenge in my life. Thank you that I have to speak to this person who maybe thinks differently than me or has different ideas than me. If you'll approach it with gratitude uh, and the knowledge of the word of the Lord and the will of God, then you can obtain wisdom knowing which one to answer. Now, what's, so which one to answer? Depends on the result, right? Lest he be lack. Lest uh, you be like him, don't answer him, lest you be like him. Or do answer him, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So if this person is uh, somebody who's just looking for a fight, wanting to bring you down to their level, it's better not to answer him. Otherwise, you'll be perceived to be like him. Or maybe he will think you're like him. Don't answer him at all. But what if it's a child? What if it's your child? Or what if it's somebody that you have responsibility over and you see the error in them? Then you want to correct them 
lest they think they're right, lest they think they're wise in their own eyes. Okay? Then you have spiritual understanding. So now we have knowledge, we've applied wisdom, and now we have spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding is the why. Why is that important? Right? Maybe somebody was watching that, uh, or maybe it's something in you. I needed to learn that I could answer this person or that I shouldn't answer this person. Maybe you're like me and you can't stand it when somebody tells you something wrong. That's me. You know, oh, well, you know, I really believe that Matthias was the 12th apostle. Okay, let's go. Right? I'm ready to fight this out. Um, I know better. And I want to prove to you that I know better and that I've studied harder than you. That's my flesh inside of me, right? So I need that spiritual understanding to know I don't have to answer every question. I don't have to argue with everybody who's wrong. I don't have to prove that I am right. That's just pride in myself. Those are those spiritual understandings that come once you've applied wisdom. Or maybe it's the opposite and you're, you're too, you don't think you know any of the Bible. You don't think you're smart enough to correct somebody else. But the Lord has brought you this wisdom. And now somebody says something to you. Maybe it's your daughter. Maybe it's somebody who's under your, you know, you have influence over. Or maybe it's somebody who's just asking you earnestly, a friend or, or even an older person who's asking you earnestly about a spiritual question. And you answer them and you say, this is what I think. This is what I see the Bible saying. Did you know the Bible says this over here? And then, or, and then you learn that you do, that through the Holy Spirit, you can instruct others. So that's spiritual understanding for you. So this is what Paul is praying, not just for the Church of Colossians, but for us. This is what the Holy Spirit wants for us. He wants us to be filled with knowledge, knowledge of his will, which is thankfulness in all situations, wisdom, all wisdom, not just one part, but both parts, Right? Not just to know to not answer, but to answer or to not. Then uh, and under spiritual understanding, the why. Why was that? Why did that happen? Why did why was the right answer that answer? This is in contrast, of course, to secret knowledge. This contrasts this idea that you have to go to this church or listen to this pastor or read this book to gain some understanding, to gain a secret to life. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago, that the book The Secret came out. If that's not Gnosticism, I mean, it says, pretty much says Gnosticism right on the front cover, except it says secret, which is the same word, right? You need this book to learn the secret. All right. Verse 10. That's only one verse. What time is it again? <laughs> well, I got time. Okay. Verse 10. Why? Why does Paul want you to have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding? That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and what? And increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now that's a lot wrapped up in those two, uh, those two verses right there. But um, verse 10 Increasing in the knowledge of God, that as you use these things, you're going to a please him. You're going to be worthy of walking in him. You're going to be fruitful. These things are going to work. And you're going to and as they do those things, you're going to actually increase in the knowledge of God. So if you have a child and you teach him how to use um, a screwdriver, you're going to make sure he if he starts to use that and get it and understand it, then you're going to oh well, look at this, a flathead. Let's show you how to do that. Okay, now that you've learned those, let me show you how to use the power drill because you really don't ever want to use those. You want to use this. <laughs> you, know, and you show him how to use the tools and say, now that you understand the principles of how a screwdriver works, this is how we real men do it. Right. Okay. So 
as we uh, increase in knowledge and as we learn these principles, God will increase and show us even more and increase in knowledge. This is as opposed to some kind of secret knowledge that you have to have to do anything. You're going to increase in knowledge. You're not learning secrets. Okay. Um, then in verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Remember, as you learn these things, it's very unlikely that your life is going to get better. As you become more wise and more full of the knowledge of God, he's going to put you in more and tougher situations. In other words, you don't, you don't teach a child to use a screwdriver and then he never has to use it, right? You're going to put him in situations where he needs to use it or a hammer or a vice grip or whatever it is. So God's going to put you in situations where you can use these things that he's preparing you to do. And you're going to find yourself in jail, chained in the inner jail, and you're going to find yourself full of joy. The rejoicing in your heart in the peace of God's sovereignty in every situation. That's what allows you to praise him in those situations. That you have rejoicing in your heart in the peace of God's sovereignty. I love that definition of joy. Um, Michael, Pastor Mike, uh, y'all are in a gym right now, but I have had church with Pastor Mike in his backyard. I have had it uh, in a coffee house. Uh, at one point, we were in a coffee house where water was coming out of the light fixture while it was raining. Um, we've had uh, church together in, um, in a used car lot. We've had church together in a tent. And we've had church together in God's Cathedral in, in Colorado. Uh, and I mean just the mountains that were up there before. Um, so regardless of where you find yourself and regardless of um, the problems that exist, um, uh, there is, if you're doing what the Lord has called you to do and if you're praying with thanksgiving, you're going to find this resounding joy, this peace that surpasses all understanding, this trust in God's sovereignty in every situation you find yourself in. Uh, and so... Moving on. Verse 12, he goes back to uh, thankfulness, right? Here we go back to thankfulness in. Giving thanks uh, to God. Uh, I'm sorry, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints of light. We are not merely these underlings that are trying to gain some kind of, glean some kind of wisdom from our instructors as the Greek philosophy teaches. Instead, we are from the beginning, from the first moment that we accept Jesus Christ, when we know nothing about the Bible, we are already qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. Man, I, you know, I, again, saints of light. That is a one, I just love that term. I think we need to take back that word saint. I know for many of you, maybe uh, you and a lot of literature, the saints are those people who have already died and, and lived a wonderful life and all these. We're saints. We're the saints of light. We are being sanctified by Jesus Christ through our faith in him, uh, by his grace. And we are saints. It's the saints in the light, the light of Christ, the light of truth, um, which is Christ. So let's take that word back and not forget as we are giving thanks to the Father, we can always do this, right? In verse 12, he's saying, well, you always have a reason to give thanks to the Father because you have already been qualified to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints of light. Amen. Wonderful. Another reason that I have found um, personally very rewarding 
And that is that through thanksgiving, the Bible promises us a miracle. Supernatural intervention in our life, if you will simply thank the Lord. And I have seen it over and over and over again because uh, the kids that we, me and Faith deal with on a daily basis are, uh, even though they have good Christian families and they have uh, these little spoiled, almost spoiled kind of lives compared to maybe the way we were raised. They're in a Christian school. Um, most of their parents have plenty of money. They're not going without food. You know, they, they have plenty of clothes. I mean, they, you know, they're, they got it good, I think, but they're still racked with depression and in, uh, you know, uh, insecurities and all of these problems that all of us face. But in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, there's a promise associated with thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And here's the promise in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. That is a promise of God, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds the way we think and the way we feel. Uh, again, another illustration from our lives as, as uh, leading the, this school, and that is that there came a point when it just didn't make sense to do it anymore. It, it didn't make financial sense. I come from a financial world. I worked at Verizon for uh, 20 years, something like that, and uh, come out of that world where uh, I like to know not just where my next meal's coming from, but where next year's meal's coming from. That's my mindset. And, um, and we, we started the school because we were being faithful. The Lord called us to do that. And we were being faithful to that. But I had a business plan. I had a business model. I had it all figured out. And by year three, we were going to be profitable and you know, all these kinds of things. <laughs> God laughs at our plans, right? But yet in year five, we decided, we, it was year six, year six. We looked at the books and we said, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to do it. it, it, it we, we can't pay our teachers. We, can't, we just can't make it. And we decided we would sell our house. Uh, I was getting laid off from Verizon. Uh, we couldn't depend on the school for my income. And, and it was just, you know, okay, let's just sell the house and start over. I'll go get a job and we'll close the school. We'll just start over. And boy, you talk about the Lord going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, he gave us, uh, we found a house. We were going on with this plan. And, and me and Faith, were bo we both came together and like, you know, I know this makes sense, but I just don't, I just don't think I'm praying and I just don't feel the Lord in this. I, you know, I, I'm not a big, you know, uh, charismatic guy to uh, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in every single second. I mean, I try to, but it's not like I'm going to uh, speak in tongues and then go do what the tongues tell me to do. Okay. I try to, I'm a more rational minded person, but I told faith, I said, I, I don't have any peace about this. I don't think this is what the Lord has called us to do. I think he still wants us to, to do the school. And I don't think he wants us to sell our house. It doesn't make any sense. I know we should, but and she says, you know what? I feel the exact same way. I've been praying about it. And I just don't have any peace. We talked to her dad and her dad says, you've got to do what the Lord told you to do and trust him and stop depending on your own mind. And so we did this. We started thanking the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for direction. Thank you, Lord, for this school. Thank you, Lord, for this house. Thank you, Lord, for um, the job that I had for 20 years. Thank you, Lord, for my 401k. You know, that I'm not, that I'm not poor and, and not going to be able to eat tomorrow. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, Helen's uh, college fund. Thank you. We just started thanking him for all the blessings he'd already given us and that he'd already been faithful in. And through that, 
we found the faith to just stay put and watch the Lord work. And boy, did he ever. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the funny thing is we're still in the same boat right now. We still don't have enough money to run the school. Never have. Uh, and yet it's still open. <laughs> so through, uh, and, and that's only the Lord. And yet, even though I, I don't have peace in the finances of my school, I do have peace in God. And that peace that surpasses all understanding. I know that where I'm at is fine. And if he closes the school tomorrow, fine. I did what the Lord told me to do. Uh, and, uh, and that's what he had to do to get it out of my hands because he didn't want it to be a prideful thing for me. He wanted it to be the glory for him. Uh, so praise the Lord. Do everything in thanksgiving and he will set a guard over your heart and mind. What a wonderful promise. Verse 13. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Past tense. Delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Past tense. Now, remember, he's contrasting these ideas. He's putting these ideas and these foundations up against this, this other idea that you have to go and learn and seek and learn these secret things from these secret men. And that, um, that it is through the knowledge of learning these things. That, and the more knowledgeable you are, the, the better you are, the more you're able to do in life. And he said, no, 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 no. You've already been delivered from the power of darkness and you've already been conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. Do we, me and you, live like that? Do we trust that in our daily walk? How often do we need to be reminded of this passage right here? I think that if you start with thanksgiving and remember this and thank the Lord for the inheritance of the saints of light and start thanking the Lord that he has already defeated darkness, then we can have way more peace in our circumstances, even today in 2020. Remember Paul and Silas again. Why were they praising God for his victory in that town? Even though they had been defeated and they were beaten and bruised, they were sitting in muck in the inner prison where there was no ventilation. They were celebrating because he had, he had had a victory in that town. And they knew they had already been delivered from the power of darkness. Okay. Verse 14. Okay, so he says, we have to back up because it's the middle of the sentence, but the son of his love, which is Jesus Christ, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. He presents the gospel right here. And he goes from that gospel that we, are, that we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sin into verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the firstborn there is referring to the title of firstborn, not the fact that he was born first. It's the firstborn is a, is a, is a title, meaning preeminent, meaning the, the one that is um, uh, in authority over the land. So this is God's firstborn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Now, with that fresh in your mind, let's read again this, this, 
this canonic idea that Jesus Christ emptied himself. He voluntarily gave up his advantage, living here uh, not as God, but as man. He had no innate supernatural powers. Do we see a problem there? For by him, he, I mean, he, Paul is laying out here that Jesus is God. These are the qualifications of God right here. He is invisible. He is uh, the image of the invisible God. By all things, uh, he, uh, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, where thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is God. Eternally God. He didn't give up anything. He restricted himself. He lived as man. He was fully God and fully man. All right. And finally, he wraps up here. Oh, by the way, we know, oh yeah, Mark 2, 5 through 12. It's a good one to know if you come across somebody who believes this canonic idea that Jesus Christ emptied himself of Godhood or emptied himself of deity. Jesus himself tells us that he did his miracles as God. In Mark 2, uh, verses 5 through 12, we find the story of the the people who had a paralytic friend and they, they dug a hole and they lowered him through the hole in order to encounter Jesus. And when Jesus saw their face and faith in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, this is Mark two, five through 12. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes that were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts saying, why does this man blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus immediately said, who perceived their spirit. Uh, oh, wait. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus with themselves, he said to them, why do you reason this way in your hearts? Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, arise, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has the power to forgive sins in other words, so that you may know that the Son of Man is God, right? The power, it has the power to forgive sins that only God has. He said to the paralytic in verse 11, I say to you, arise and take your bed and walk. He did his miracles on earth, not as a man, so that we can do the miracles too. He did his miracles to prove that he was God and had the power to forgive sins, which is what he wants us to tell other people, that Jesus Christ can forgive sins. Love that. I love it when the Bible just slaps you in the face. All right, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things may, that, that, oh, that in <laughs> all things he may have preeminence. So here he is contrasting this against this Gnostic idea, the secret knowledge uh, that the Greeks were um, Promoting, okay? Then, and that, that is the is establishment of Christ's preeminence over all things and Christ's deity. And then in uh, verses 19 through 20, he talks about being reconciled in Christ, which contrasts again against um, legalism and Judaism. And then in 24, through the end of the chapter, he talks about um, the, our service for Christ and how our service should be sacrificial. It should be one way. It's not a veneration idea. It's a, we serve him. He doesn't serve us. That kind of idea here 
uh, is the 24th through the end of the chapter. And, uh, and that, of course, contradicts uh, or contrasts uh, pagan, paganism. So now in verse, I mean, in chapter two, in verse one, Paul is going to now just attack directly the philosophy. He's going to just go after philosophy itself. Um, he starts off with uh, the first three verses are basically he's he's telling you what he's going to do. He's recapping from that first passage that we just referenced. He's saying, uh, for I know for I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for all of those who have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, attaining all the riches and full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both the Father and Christ, and whom, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So there we have that reference back to knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Full assurance. I love that, that word, the full assurance of understanding. Okay, in verse 4. Now this I say, lest any should deceive with you with... Uh, been talking too long. I need a drink. Now I say, lest any should deceive you with persuasive words. That's philosophy. That's rhetoric. That's what they were known for. Verse 5. For though I am absent in the flesh, I am yet with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of faith in Christ. The proper use of the spirit and flesh that faith in Jesus Christ should be steadfast and unwavering. He says, don't, in other words, verse four and five is don't doubt the simple gospel I have delivered to you. You don't need it. You don't need these persuasive words. You don't need this deception in your life. Instead, keep steadfast, steadfast faith in Jesus Christ. Verse six, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in faith as you have been taught abounding with it again in thanksgiving. So here he is bringing in this idea of lordship in our walk. Too many times I think we struggle with this idea of lordship in the church today because uh, we, have, we don't have lords in our culture. We have bosses. And we think, well, Jesus is our boss. He can tell me what to do on Sunday or he can tell me what to do when I'm, you know, in this situation or that situation. But in this area of my life, I know best. I know, I know this, cult, this is a sort of a cultural thing, not a religious thing. So, but lordship is not that way. Lordship means it's somebody that you pledge allegiance to in every area of your life. He's not just your boss. He's your Lord. He doesn't just get to tell you what to do. He gets to tell you how to think. That's a Lord. If you disagreed with the Lord, you changed your opinion. That was the way lordship worked. It was such a big deal that these very words right here that Paul is writing could get him killed just a few years later and will get him killed. But, and many Christians killed because they will, they will refuse to say that Jesus is Lord. You can only have one Lord. You can only pledge your allegiance to one person, one Lord. And Caesar wanted it to be him. And that's why he passed the law. You have to proclaim Caesar as Lord. And the Christians refused to do that because they understood no, Jesus is Lord. We'll, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. We'll obey the law. We'll be good citizens. But Jesus is Lord. And Caesar says, no, you have to say, I am Lord. And um, that got a lot of Christians killed. But so we need to understand that, that word lordship. It is the way we walk in him. He has authority over all of our lives. 
And we need to continually examine ourselves to make sure of that fact. What areas of my life, Lord, have I not given you authority over? What areas of my life am I still holding on to? Is it my relationship with my wife? Is it my sexuality? Is it my desires? Is it my food cravings? Is it what area of my life do I still need to turn over to you in lordship? And do it, of course, with thanksgiving, trusting in him. Verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principle of this world, and not according to Christ. In verse 8, he ties all these things together, all three pressures. Notice he says, philosophy and empty deceit. Okay, that's the Greek pressure. Then he says, the traditions of men. That's the Jewish pressure. Jewish traditions, customs, legalism. And then he says, and the basic principles of this world, which is the tit for tat, the quid, quid pro quo, that I'll do something for you, you do something for me. And that's paganism. And he ties them all together with this, that none of those three are according to Christ. That we do not, we will be cheated if we live in those ways of thinking versus according to Christ. And then in verse 9. Verse 9, it's like the, it's the death knell of this entire idea. For in him, in Jesus, right, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That statement right there destroys this kenosis theory. It destroys these people who are trying to teach this, this kenotic theory. Um, In him, in Jesus Christ, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, he makes a reference to his body, to his flesh, that the fullness of God dwells in his flesh, in Jesus Christ, even when he was in bodily form. The New International Version says it this way, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The New Living says, For in Christ lives the fullness of God in human body. The literal translation says, Because in him doth tabernacle, I love that, does tabernacle all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I go to several different versions, and they all say the same thing. That in him... No part was lacking the fullness of God. So it wasn't that he had emptied himself of anything godly, anything deity, anything like that. Verse 10, and this is our, this is, we'll wrap up right here. Oh, good timing. The Lord's in control. He is the head of all principality and power. And you are complete in him. You don't need this Greek Greek philosophy. You don't need a God that is going to do for you if you do for him. You don't need to be circumcised or to live under the law. You are complete in him. He is the head of all principality and power. And you are complete in him. You don't need secret knowledge. You don't need the burning in your bosom from the Book of Mormon. You don't need the spirit of sonship, as Joseph Prince describes. You don't need a secret, the secret of the Jehovah Watchtower Society. 
You don't need the dominion God-man from John G. Lake. You don't need the do signs and wonders and the miracles of the NAR. You don't need Bill Johnson's revival that's required for every church. You don't need to speak in tongues as evidence of your salvation. You don't need fill in the blank. What is your hangup? What is your past? I don't know any of you, but you were raised with something that somebody told you you needed besides Jesus Christ. And right here in verse 10, it says, he is the head of all principality and all power, and you are complete in him. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you.